Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, for your word and we thank you for the gift of family. And Lord, often we take it for granted, uh, but we pray uh, that you uh, would use it to take your gospel even uh, to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're talking about the Christian family uh, today. And um, I don't really have, um, I have an agenda, but it's maybe not the agenda you're thinking about. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about, from Acts chapter 16, uh, the life of the Philippian jailer and this very interesting uh, scripture that says that uh, he and his whole household uh, were baptized. And so let's look at Acts chapter 16, uh, verses 19 through 34. Just to give you context. Well, actually, let's, you know the context. So let's start at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And then they took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The word of the Lord. Okay, well, it's a remarkable story, uh, the prison doors being thrown open and God causing an earthquake. And uh, in this man, this jailer who had been listening to Paul and Silas uh, sing hymns all night, uh, that were gossiping the gospel. They were talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so that prisoner that was there uh, was listening to them. Um, I, I was looking up, you know, the duties of a prison guard recently because of this text. And uh, throughout the ages, uh, the job description hasn't changed much. Uh, your job is to keep prisoners in prison. Uh, but one of the things I thought was very interesting, even in Jesus' day, that there was a rule, and that was you were not allowed to talk to the prisoners. And just this week, uh, you may have heard about this young guy from UVA who stole a propaganda banner in uh, North Korea. Um, you know, how do you get sold on a trip like that? Come see North Korea, uh, unless you're Dennis Rodman. And, uh, and so uh, this kid stole uh, a poster. He actually said he, was, he stole it for a, a girl who works at a church. Did you hear that? And, uh, and so they gave him 15 years of hard labor. And they interviewed a young woman who, uh, who's Korean-American. And she and another girl uh, were, um, who were reporters uh, were jailed in North Korea a couple years ago, and they were sentenced to 12 months of hard labor, but they didn't actually serve the sentence. They were there for 140 days, but they were just kind of in prison. And she said that that was probably the hardest thing. She said that there were always two guards, and that kept the guard from talking to the prisoner, and they weren't allowed to. And she said being in solitary confinement, that was the hardest thing, not being able uh, to talk uh, to the guards, but she found that every once in a while a guard would capitulate 
and would actually talk to her sort of silently and engage her in conversation. And, uh, and I, I wondered uh, why, and it was especially at night, she said, when sometimes there was just one guard, and then the next day she would not see the guard ever again. And I wondered, you know, this girl was talking about how badly she wanted to be able to communicate with somebody, uh, but what we see, uh, I think, here and in her own experience is the need for the guard to communicate with somebody. Uh, he, too, has a gag order. He's not allowed to speak to them. And so there is this uh, non-communicative uh, uh, communication uh, going, uh, going on. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but uh, so, uh, psychologists are taking a really good look at this. Have you ever been around somebody who's speaking on their cell phone? Doesn't it drive you bonkers? Not because it's rude, but because you can only hear one side of the conversation. <laughs> And you are dead. So what do you do? You take out your phone, right? And you start fiddling with it and you try to occupy yourself. But it's actually, your, your brain has a very hard time dealing with it. And so this guard is sitting here listening, even though he can see, hear both sides of the conversation. Uh, he realizes that he actually has a part to play in the conversation, but is not allowed to speak. But he's listening closely, so much so that uh, when uh, he's about to kill himself and St. Paul says, don't do it which seems like a foolish thing to do. I would have, you know, see you later, sucker, and just taken out off the door. Uh, but St. Paul, in great compassion, said, we're all here, and he rushes in, and he sees them, and he falls before his feet, uh, before their feet, uh, which uh, in, other past, in other parts of the book of Acts, when someone falls before the feet of the apostles, Peter most notably, uh, Peter says, don't, don't fall on your knees to me. I'm a mortal man, and yet Paul doesn't say anything about it here. Why? Because there's nothing ungodly about it, right? This was an outward sign of this man's repentance, of his desperation, and he took the pose of a beggar, begging, what must I do in order to be saved? And then uh, they say to him, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. Okay. Uh, and then he washed their wounds, which I thought was very funny uh, that he waited till then uh, to do that. But it's a response, which we'll get into in a minute. Uh, but this very curious word that you and your household uh, will be saved. Uh, what, did, uh, what did Paul mean by this? Uh, what uh, is Luke trying to tell us in the book of Acts? I have a family member who is uh, openly uh, non-Christian. They're not hostile to Christianity, uh, but they're married to somebody who is a very faithful Christian. And, uh, and inevitably, uh, this family member always wants me to bring up Jesus with this non-believing family member. And so the whole idea of salvation came up one time at Thanksgiving, and, um, and he just said, look, I, I mean, my plan is to ride my wife's coattails right on up into heaven, you know, just kind of, you're just like, you giddy up, and, uh, and, and then I, I, I make it in, and um, is that what uh, Paul is saying? Uh, no, Paul's not saying that uh, at all, uh, but what he is relaying, uh, and I think, I, I don't think the Philippian jailer would have gotten it, but I think that those uh, Jews who are reading this would have gotten it, and that is the covenantal understanding of salvation in the Lord Jesus, I mean, that's been the story of salvation of the people of Israel since the beginning of time, right? Just a series of covenants uh, with God's people, uh, even knowing full and well that, that 
they were going to break them. Uh, and, uh, but in all those covenants, ultimately uh, pointing to their fulfillment uh, in Jesus Christ, one of the most vivid of those covenants is when God floods the earth. And, uh, and everybody on the earth except for who was in the ark dies. And God makes a covenant with Noah, and He says, I promise I'll never flood the earth again. I promise I'll never do that. Uh, and to show you uh, my covenant promise, I'll put a rainbow uh, in the sky. Now, we've kind of reduced that story to VBS and... Um, and, you know, we, we decorate children's nurseries with those things. I've mentioned Doré's engravings before, um, which I found as a child and totally dispelled me of seeing cute, fluffy animals in the ark uh, because Doré portrays the flood uh, like this. You can see the flood. Uh, you can see the ark on the horizon and the water's rising, and there's not really much land left, only a few rock outcroppings. And you can see this mother who is drowning, pushing her infant child up onto the rock, and above them is perched a female lion in her cub looking hungrily down uh, on the baby. Uh, well, that didn't make it into VBS um, for some reason. Uh, but seeing that as a child, I mean, it really, like this was an awful thing, right? This was a terrible, terrible thing. And so to say, oh, look at this cute, sweet rainbow. Isn't that lovely? Uh, really downplays what God is trying to, to say. And uh, the rainbow placed in the sky wasn't just a, uh, a weather phenomenon. Uh, but was very intentional. And people in the Old Testament, uh, in that day and age, would have understand what it meant because it didn't represent a bow you put in your daughter's hair. It didn't represent uh, even a rainbow. But what did it look like? A battle bow, a bow and arrow. And where in the flood, God's wrath was poured out on the earth, the rainbow now tells us what? That the arrow is now pointed at God Himself. And so... All of these covenants, and I could keep going on and on, that, that, that point to Jesus and even uh, God's covenant with His people through uh, the judges and uh, Gideon being the, the, a great example of, of God taking that which is nothing and turning it into something and even being uh, at least the immediate salvation of the people of Israel uh, into the kings and through the prophets, uh, God's message of deliverance and His love uh, for His people. Now, that is pretty significant. I mean, finally, he goes to the extent where um, uh, he uh, gets the prophet Hosea uh, to marry a prostitute named Gomer in order to illustrate his covenant with his people, that you are, my people, an unfaithful, stiff-necked people. And Gomer says to Hosea, I mean, he shouldn't have known better to marry a woman named Gomer. Good grief. Uh, but, uh, uh, but even Gomer says, look... I." I'm just going to tell you exactly what she says. She says, look, I understand that we're married now, but I'm not going to stop working. I'm going to continue turning tricks. You just need to know that and be aware of that. Well, uh, obviously, he's not very happy about that. Uh, but what a powerful illustration of God's love for his people who will actually look at him defiantly in the face and say, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And God's saying that that actually does not nullify my grace and my favor uh, towards you. Now, the sign of the covenant uh, in the Old Testament was what? Circumcision, right? Circumcision. And um, this was uh, every, on the eighth day, every male child born into the people of Israel uh, were circumcised. And if you were an older uh, convert, uh, you would be circumcised as a male as well, regardless uh, of your age. And... Um, 
Uh, in fact, uh, I'm not trying to be too terribly graphic, but Mark Genelette, you're not in here, are you? Oh, good, I can tell the story. Okay, so uh, Mark was actually very distraught when we were living in England. In fact, there's a picture of me holding William Genelette when he was born at the John Ratcliffe Infirmary, uh, where I did my CPE training. And, um, and there was this huge issue of the fact that the hospital refused to circumcise babies. And so we had to track down a Jewish moil uh, to come up to Oxford and, and, and do that. Uh, and so what was, it got this huge conversation going in seminary about uh, circumcision, which is why you're all here today to hear about. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, that it, it was remarkably that the only nations that, that do that anymore are Israel and us, basically. You know, that, that's, that's, pretty much, uh, that's pretty much it. And, um, and there are some places in Africa that are doing it now, but that's for uh, health reasons. Well, uh, so this was something that uh, we take for granted in our day and age, but certainly set them apart. So if you were an Israelite and you found yourself captured by the enemy, there was no lying, right? right? If you're a man, there was no getting around it. You could say, oh, no, I'm an Amalekite. And by looking at them, you might not actually be able to tell the difference until you unclothe them, and then you're like, liar. Uh, you would know uh, that they were an Israelite. And so that was the outward sign and symbol that they were in the covenant family, that they were in the covenant community, the covenant people of God. Uh, however, elsewhere in the Old Testament, we hear that there are those who are circumcised of the flesh, but not circumcised of the heart, which means what? They may have outwardly been uh, a member of the people of Israel, Certainly, they were a member of the people of Israel, but uh, their hearts uh, were not uh, part of God's uh, covenant people. Uh, why is that? Well, it didn't have anything to do with their dastardly behavior or, or their inability to keep God's law uh, or even, uh, at times, their unfaithfulness. Uh, but what it was is that they had never uh, come to a place where they had lived into the reality of who they were as a child of God, as a part of that covenant uh, people. And so this idea was carried over into the New Testament, into the church, uh, with the understanding uh, that now this covenant symbol certainly is not uh, restricted just to men, uh, but to men and women. And what is that sign of the new covenant? Begins with B and ends in aptism. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Uh, so that is the closest thing that we have in the New Testament to what circumcision was uh, in the Old Testament, uh, that there are those who are set apart uh, by baptism as being part of the covenant household uh, of God. Now, I've already mentioned in here before that baptism uh, does not uh, save you. Uh, we see that in the... There's no biblical testimony that says that, and in fact, in the book of Acts, uh, what we hear is that when people ask, what do I have to do to be saved, uh, you almost, well, you, almost, you always hear one of two things. You either hear, uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, full stop, or believe and be baptized and you will be saved. Uh, you never, ever hear anybody in the New Testament saying, be baptized and be saved. They never say it. Uh, they never say it. But the thing about it, too, is that the, the New Testament never sees, and the church doesn't see it this way either, uh, never sees baptism divorced from faith. Right? We don't see them as, as two separate issues. 
Uh, in fact, we feel that God actually has the ability uh, to work His purposes even through the ordinances of the church. Now, this is uh, a different idea because in our culture, especially in the Christian culture in America, uh, salvation has been reduced to an individualistic thing, right? Remember the Tom T. Hall song, Me and Jesus Got Our Own Thing Going? Uh, it, there's a little bit of that that uh, uh, I was talking to a friend the other day who's gone through a lot in his life, and, um, and he was talking about through all of that, he said, you know, I don't go to church, uh, but God and I are pretty tight. And, um, and I, I believe, I believe that, and yet uh, what I would also believe is that if uh, he's part of the family of the Lord Jesus, then he will seek out and spend time with his brothers and sisters, uh, which is not an easy thing to do. I get that. Uh, and yet, um, so it's not simply that the Bible says it just really matters your individual relationship with the Lord Jesus, although it does matter, doesn't it? Right? Jesus calls you by name. He leaves the 99 to go after the one. But in your salvation, He doesn't leave you to yourself. He doesn't say, okay, I've gone after you because you're the one who's wandered off, but you know what? Stay out here. And you and I will just kind of go walking along. No, what does the Bible tell us? It tells us that Jesus takes the lamb up and does what? Returns to the fold. Right? That's what happens, that you return uh, into uh, the fold. And so we see throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, you know, a number of direct words to individuals, uh, but also a word to God's people. You know, read Paul's letters. I mean, they're to us. They speak to us individually, uh, but they also speak to us as his body, as the bride of Christ. Now, so why baptize? Uh, well, it's more than, you know, a lot of people will call baptism christening, and that's only part of it. Uh, I think of that scene from Caddyshack where Judge Schmales, I christen thee the flying wasp. Uh, we haven't broken any champagne bottles on any children's heads around here, uh, but uh, that's part of baptism. It's a naming service, uh, and that's why we ask, name this child. In fact, in England, uh, it's still the law that there, you get a birth certificate, but you don't need to put a name on the birth certificate. But you do have to have a name on your baptism certificate. Now, this is with the understanding that every child would be baptized. Uh, and in fact, if you put a name, like let's say your name is John Henry Smith on your baptism certificate, if the minister baptizes you under a different name, that trumps your original birth certificate. And so there was actually a controversy in the 20th century over this vicar who would just baptize the children under whatever name he saw fit. Like, they would say, this is John Henry. And I mean, you've met people like that. You look at me like, no, you're not. Your name is Kevin. And then, uh, and so all of a sudden, John would become uh, Kevin. And there was a big, big problem uh, with all of that. Um, but that's an important part of the service because you, you are, you're, you're, getting, you're getting a name because God does know you by name. He knows the number of hairs on your head. And so uh, the child is named uh, before the Lord. Uh, but it's more than just that. It is this remarkable uh, sacrament of the church uh, whereby you are grafted uh, into the church. And so let me read you um, the, uh, the article. Uh, this is Article 27, for those of you thinking about this, uh, in the Articles of Religion on Bapti of Baptism. Baptism is not only a sign of profession and mark of difference, whereby Christian men are discerned from others that be not baptized, 
but it is also a sign of regeneration or new birth, whereby, as by an instrument, water, they that receive baptism rightly are grafted into the church, the promises of the forgiveness of sin and of our adoption to be the sons of God by the Holy Spirit are visibly signed and sealed. Faith is confirmed and grace increased by virtue of prayer unto God. The baptism of young children is in any wise to be retained in the church as most agreeable with the institution of Christ. Okay, now what in the world does that mean? Well, it means this, is that it's, uh, it's a sign, it's an outward sign of an inward working of what God is already doing in your life, or even the life of a child. And so the reformers were very careful to say that those that receive baptism rightly are grafted into the church. Now, what did they mean? Like, you have a right attitude? Yep. Well, that's kind of funny because I've never had an infant come up and say, baptize me. You know, I'm ready to go. Uh, they've never willfully come forward and done that. In fact, uh, at best, they're neutral. At worst, they're resistant. Um, <laughs> At my last parish, there was a guy named Craig, uh, not our Craig, but a different Craig. And Craig was actually a former uh, rugby player for the South African national team. And he was our youth minister. And uh, he'd gotten married and, uh, to a very lovely woman. And they had a baby. And Craig had grown up in the Baptist tradition and so was kind of struggling with whether or not to have the child baptized. And so they waited until uh, Althea was three years old to baptize her. Uh, which is a terrible age. Uh, I, I don't want to dissuade anybody from baptism, but they're too big to hold and they're too short to lean over the font and it's just a recipe for disaster. And Althea inherited her father's genes when it came to size and uh, God bless her. And so, but Craig being a big man held her and we got to that part in the service where, where I asked, do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? And that child reached up and grabbed his neck and squeezed so hard that blood started to trickle down his neck and Craig said, I renounce them! It was this very uh, visible moment. And reminder that this child is not coming willingly and that she, and if, if actually left to herself, would do everything possible that she could to get away from it. And yet, isn't that God's story with us? Uh, if, if left to ourselves, if God is saying, the door is always open, we'd never be able to get through it unless God himself actually comes in. Fitz Allison, who was the bishop of South Carolina when Hurricane Hugo hit, uh, being a historian, uh, was living uh, in the peninsula, and his first thought was, Lord have mercy the archives. And so he got on his bicycle and navigated the streets of Charleston, which were just a total mess, and, um, and made it into the diocesan offices, went upstairs, and uh, opened, they had a safe door with a dial on it, and opened it up, and he got inside of it, and he saw to his great relief that everything was fine. But then he heard the door close behind him. And he realized it would be a week at least before anybody came back to the office. He didn't tell Martha where he had gone. And he just freaked. And so he went over and he pulled and he pulled as hard as he could and realized he couldn't open the door. And he said he fell on the floor weeping and heard God speak very clearly to him. And he stood up and he pushed the door open. Uh, it was push, not pull. Uh, it's like that wonderful far side where it has, you know, it says like, you know, it says like Birmingham School of the Gifted and the kid is pulling on the door and it says push on it. Um, uh, and uh, so really, if left to himself, uh, the door is wide open. And yet, if we, if God is waiting for us to simply open it and walk through, 
Uh, it's not going to happen. And so in the same way, baptism demonstrates for us God's great love uh, for His people, uh, that He pursues them uh, and meets them even in baptism. So what does it mean to receive it rightly? Right? And we're still thinking about the Philippian jailer's household, which I believe would have included children. It would have included servants. Uh, it would have included all of them uh, that were being brought into uh, the life of the church there in Philippi. Well, what does it mean to receive baptism rightly? Uh, it means that God has planted faith uh, in your heart, that God has actually given you that gift. It's not that you've been able to muster up, up enough faith, which is uh, a real pastoral travesty and theological um, uh, flaw in our church that we think that faith is something that we conjure up within ourselves. And so we'll say very cruel things to people who are suffering like, well, maybe you just don't have enough faith. Right? Because if that were the case, how many of us, when we're down and out, wouldn't try everything possible in order to muster up enough faith? Right? Uh, so faith is actually a gift that God uh, implants to us, uh, a belief in Him, an ability to turn away from ourselves and to have our eyes opened uh, to uh, what He has done for us through uh, Jesus Christ. And so uh, those who receive it rightly are grafted into the church. The promises of forgiveness of sin and our adoption as sons of God by the Holy Ghost are visibly signed and sealed. Faith is confirmed. So that's why in our tradition, we don't rebaptize. We don't do that. Um, I mean, there are other things that we can do to, to help you reaffirm your faith publicly. Uh, but if somebody comes to me and says, well, I was baptized as a baby, but then I didn't become a Christian until years later, so I want to be baptized, my response to them was, well, you don't need to be baptized. Your baptism worked, right? It, 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 you know, you received it rightly. Uh, and so there's an understanding uh, in the Bible and in the church that we are actually declaring, yes, we believe that God in His mercy is going to save this child, and so we're going to treat them as Christians, right? We're going to believe in faith that as God has saved you and me, that God actually can save this child as well. But, as the Reformers say, uh, it is increased by virtue of prayer unto God. Not salvation, uh, but this understanding that we have a role and why we have godparents in our tradition is because uh, if left to themselves, uh, they're not going to make it. I always think it's remarkable, the, the parents who, uh, who tell me, you know, when it comes, they'll have the kids baptized, but when it comes to talking to them about Jesus, they'll say things like, well, I don't want to manipulate my kids and I'm going to let my kids decide what they want to do spiritually. Well, so they'll say things like, I'm not going to make them go to church, and on and on and on and on. And I get that. Uh, I get that to an extent. Uh, but, I mean, what if our kids came to us and said, you know, I hate school, I hate the second grade, and I never want to go back again? I mean, would you say, oh, well, I don't want to turn them off of school, so I'm going to let them stay home as much as they want? No, that, that would, you know, and no child ends up on the couch saying, my parents made me go to school. Um, unless you handle it in a way that a lot of parents do uh, by, and we're going to talk about this, by uh, farming out the work of evangelizing your children to the church. Uh, and so if there's a parent who says, you know, I want the kid to decide for themselves, uh, if you aim at nothing, you're guaranteed to hit it. And so your kids probably will grow up 
uh, not knowing of God's uh, great love for them uh, in Jesus. And what we see in the Bible and in the history of the world, and I bet you in your own testimony, that the family is the primary means of evangelism. That most of you became Christians or understood what God had done for you in Jesus Christ, right? When, it's kind of funny when people say, well, I got saved on December the 15th, 1978. I understand what they're saying, but the reality is, is that you actually were saved 2,000 years ago uh, on a cross outside of Jerusalem. That's when you were saved. And now it may have been December 15, 1978, when God opened your eyes to that reality, uh, but that's the truth of the matter. But for many of us, uh, we first heard about Jesus uh, in the context of our family. So even Timothy, who's with, um, who's with Paul in his journeys, uh, Paul, uh, Paul will say it. He said, you heard about Jesus from your mother and your grandmother. That's the means by which God used uh, to open your eyes to what he had done in your life. And some interesting statistics. Um, why is it? You know, I, I think it's remarkable. that Do you know that 86% of people who are Christians say that they came to an acknowledgement of their faith before they were 15 years old? 86%. And people who, uh, and although I think the statistic at the Advent actually uh, is, is different from this one, but of Christians just across uh, the, the board, uh, those who said they came to faith when they were 30 or older, 4%. 4%. Now, I'd like to think that that's because children are man, man, easily manipulated, uh, but that's not, uh, that's not the case because uh, the, the statistic is only 6% of children 0 to 5. And, uh, and so the great bulk of folks who uh, come to faith uh, have their eyes open to it. It happens between 5 uh, and 15 and uh, almost 90% uh, before the age of 22. Right. So what does that mean? What does that tell us? That that is, uh, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, think about the development uh, of a child. I mean, one of the things that we talked about this week uh, in staff was how old should we have the kids be um, to do the walk to the cross, which is happening this, this afternoon, and, and it's a dramatization of uh, Jesus and, and Holy Week. Uh, and we were wondering about it because it's graphic, right? A man, they see a man murdered. And so how old uh, should we uh, draw the line? Should we say, you know, if you're four or younger, you should sit this one out? Uh, or uh, five, you know, where do you draw the line? And, um, and I'm pretty uh, convinced uh, that our children understand a whole lot more than we give them credit for. Uh, and it's amazing to me and a little disheartening sometimes uh, the questions that come up uh, from young children. In fact, uh, that is my scariest arena for ministry getting set in front of kids who are about four to seven years old and allowing them to ask questions. That is scary for me. Why? Because they ask really good, hard questions. I mean, um, Chris uh, Taylor was telling me, he said, I got a tough one. He said, the six-year-old asked, well, if, if God knew that we were going to sin and fall in the Garden of Eden, uh, why did he put the tree there in the first place? And that's when I faked a, a stroke and I, I fell over and Really hard questions. So uh, they get a whole lot more than we uh, give them credit. And they think about real life things. I mean, it's really amazing to me uh, how the hardness of life um, sets into our children. 
uh, whether it's through media or, or whatever it is. And it's, um, it's really, uh, really sad. I mean, I, I was hearing about a girl in a local elementary school here that is in the first grade. And, uh, and there were some girls uh, that were telling her that uh, her clothes were ugly, right? And in first grade, uh, in first grade, I was lucky to make it to school with clothes on. Uh, and, uh, and, and so, but, but to have, you know, you don't have to teach, teach a kid to be mean. Uh, and so that meanness uh, is very evident uh, to children. And so even then, you've got a first grader who's saying, my clothes are ugly, therefore I feel unworthy. And they're actually articulating that. And they're wondering, what makes me worthy? Where do I find my identity? Who will save me from these terrible first grade girls? Well, uh, the answer is, is Jesus Christ. And to offer uh, these children uh, Jesus in his totality, not Jesus meek and mild. He's a really good teacher. And I mean, I could tell the first grader, you know what? Be kind unto one another. I could tell the first grader, you know what? Be really nice to them because it will be like heaping burning coals upon their head. And all of that is true. But is that going to save her from her existential angst over her clothes? And you know as well as I do that it's not, you can also say, you know, this is such a surfacy thing and it really doesn't matter so long as you feel comfortable in yourself. Well, that's just it. She doesn't feel comfortable in herself. She knows that something is not right and these children belittling her actually has tapped into something real in her life. And so what she needs is someone who is willing to dive headfirst into her situation and rescue her. That's what she needs. She needs to understand uh, that you might feel like you want to die, but there's one who has died in your stead and has been raised uh, again. And so when we look at the Philippian jailer and his family, uh, there is something uh, remarkable about it that there weren't, uh, I I believe that, uh, that there were some questions asked at the baptism, do you believe in Jesus? Do you accept him as your Lord and Savior? But there wasn't this list of how do you, uh, how do you deal with this article of faith? Uh, but simple faith saying yes, and even those who couldn't answer for themselves, trusting in God's providence, trusting in his grace and his mercy, baptizing them into the life of the church. And this beautiful, I don't know if Luke meant this intentionally, uh, but at the same hour of the night, uh, and, and what, he washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them into the house and set food before him. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. That the, the very, uh, I, I don't think it's too hard to believe that the very bowl uh, that uh, was used to wash the wounds of Paul and Silas is the very bowl and water that was used to baptize him and his family that where they had their stripes washed, uh, he had his sins uh, washed in the waters of baptism by virtue of the blood of Jesus. And then he brings them into their house. You know, I don't know if you know this, but it's actually a New Testament requirement uh, to be an elder, to be ordained in the church, uh, to practice hospitality, uh, to actually uh, be hospitable to people, to be welcoming. And he invites these uh, up to now perfect strangers into his home and, and feeds them uh, and rejoices with them because this man and his entire household, their lives are changed forever. Their lives are changed forever. 
they get it. Uh, they get it. And if God can uh, shake the prison doors so that they fling open, and if the prisoners can have mercy on the prison guard, uh, then surely uh, God is mighty to save, and that is a salvation that is not contingent upon us, but is rooted in His mercy. Questions, comments, concerns? Libon. that maybe God sent the earthquake not for the apostles' escape, but for the prisoner guard's Absolutely. salvation. Absolutely. I think that more so, that it was more for the prison guard than it was for the prisoners. The outward visible sign is less important than the invisible sign that took place That's right. in the guard. That's right. Spare thou those who confess their faults and restore thou those who are penitent. And of that and an occasional uh, reading from, uh, or from the scripture quoting John the Baptist, that's about all we ever hear of repentance. Right. Is it not important or why do we don't hear about it some more? Uh, I, I don't like to repent, um, so I don't talk about it that much. Uh, uh, you know, I, I feel, I, I, I get Donald Trump. I mean, everyone's shocked, but, you know, when he said, why should I ask for God's forgiveness? Because I, I've never done anything that merits uh, forgiveness. And I think in that, and this is not a political statement, but I think that that says a lot, that there are many in the world who do think that way. Like, I'm pretty much an all right person, but you can tell that there's a move of the Spirit and that your faith is real and genuine uh, if you're moved to repentance. And so what I would say is that repentance is just part and parcel. It's not something that we actually have to think about doing, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're constantly under conviction uh, to repent. I mean, daily for me, it's not that I sit down and say, I need to do an inventory of all of my sinful practices, but just in the moment, like last night, I was at dinner and I was just, I had to, I had to stop and repent of my gluttonous after I finished my meal, of course. But, <laughs> I mean, it's stuff like that. Like I get convicted over stuff that, you know, when I wasn't a Christian, yeah, pff, whatever, you know, whatever. I would say that it's, that we are brought to a place that the only real repentance is a repentance that is brought about by God Himself. Because I think there's a big difference. I heard someone preach one time and they said that, well, being repentant means being really sorry. That's part of it. Uh, but we don't know how to apologize in our culture. You know, we, we, say, we say we're sorry, but it's normally because we've been caught or that somebody is upset by it. Like, I'm sorry. You know, I used to tell my brothers all the time when my mom would say, you need to apologize. And I had done some prank or had been teasing my brothers. And my response was, Michael and Christopher, I am so, so sorry that you don't have a sense of humor. Um, and that's, that's basically what, what, what an apology is today. So repentance, the Greek word is metanoia, and it means uh, not just a change of mind like you decided and said, you know what, I decided I've changed my mind, but actually it's like a brain transplant. It's like you've been given a new mind, a new heart, and that's why... David cries out in the great psalm of lamentation, uh, created me a clean heart, O God. Not, uh, God, just scrub up the heart that I have, but I need a new one because I know that if left to myself, my repentance isn't real. It's, it's you know, it's, it's just, uh, I'm sorry that I got caught. And that was initially how David felt with Bathsheba. I'm sorry I got caught. And then it wasn't really until after the death of the baby that, that he, and, and even then it was, it was Nathan coming to him and saying, Thou art the man. The Holy Spirit actually catches us off guard because if we're on guard, we won't repent. 
Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, that's that's that that oftentimes repentance comes in the most unlikeliest of places. I mean, it would make sense if you know you find yourself a little more repentant uh, in church. But I have a feeling that many of us have been in context where we felt incredibly uncomfortable. And it's not because anybody's come up to us and said, this is not a good idea, uh, but because God is speaking to us and, uh, and not in, a, in an overburdening, guilty way, but all of a sudden uh, the things that grieve God's heart begin to grieve your heart. All right, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.